good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to the curators behind a unique art exhibition that pairs classic and contemporary works in unexpected ways. The dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to review a new play at the Story Theater, and we'll discuss a controversy at one of the city's most respected theater companies. Later, I'll catch up with author and GQ magazine writer Jason Diamond to talk about a new TV show that does what few others have been able to do get the details of Chicago right. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. And before we get into the show, I wanted to acknowledge the horrific tragedy that took place in Highland Park this past 4th of July holiday. The mass shooting that led to the senseless loss of lives has weighed heavily on me as I know it has many of you out there. My thoughts are with the victims and their families. Classic and contemporary pieces of art combine in unexpected ways in a new exhibit at the Cleve Kearney Museum of Art. The Glen Ellen-based museum on the campus of College of DuPage is presenting a show titled Hooking Up. The exhibition pairs classic works by legends like Rembrandt and Andy Warhol with contemporary pieces by local artists like the Astor Gates and Jose Lerma. The unique combinations create something new to contemplate. I recently visited the Cleve Carney Museum of Art to talk to the curators behind Hooking Up. We wanted to do an exhibit that highlighted our collection. This is Cleve Carney gallery director and curator Justin Witte. As you know, but as listeners may not know, we have over 800 works in our permanent art collection by some very important and interesting artists. A lot of it did come from the late Cleve Carney, the namesake of the museum who was a resident of Glen Ellen. But we wanted to present it in a way where it wasn't just a typical collection show where we bring it out, but instead use it as a chance to highlight artists from the Chicago area and to create dialogue between the works. We want to be somewhat playful, hence the title as well, like hooking up, pairing up, and as a way to introduce people to the collection. The person responsible for putting the exhibit together is the museum's assistant curator, Julia Walker. My approach for this exhibition was to approach local artists or their studio representatives to see what options we really had available to us. In most cases, it was working with existing works that they'd already created and bringing them to the exhibition. Once we did that, we were able to compile a list of people who were excited to work with us, which turned out to be pretty much everyone, and that was a really exciting feeling. We then got to decide which of these works that the artists had available would pair best with the works that we had. So we were fortunate enough to be able to feature artists like Theaster Gates, Amanda Williams, Brittany Mara, and these artists who are, there are some that are really well established and well known and some that are more emerging artists. I was really excited to give different artists different kinds of opportunities. So Theaster Gates was happy to be working with a local museum when he's been working on these big national projects. 
and other artists were really excited because it's their first time being featured in a museum. So that, that contrast was really exciting to me. Visitors walking through the exhibit will be able to see these unique pairings. One example of a unique combination in Hooking Up features works by Toulouse-Lautrec and Rockwell in conversation with a piece by contemporary artist Troy Lehman. Individual works from the permanent collection are matched up with individual contemporary works from these local artists. Were you looking for like thematic ties or how were you pairing them up in the gallery space? Each pairing came together kind of differently. Some were thematic based on what was actually visually present in the work. Others were more about bringing up contrasts and juxtaposing ideas. And some were more about the artists' actual personal lives and their stories and how we can connect those as well. When we talk about pairing some of these artists, I think it creates very interesting conversations visually, but also in terms of the content. So you have really unexpected visual juxtapositions, like we have a Rembrandt print hung on top of a giant, was it 26 foot wide by 13 feet high mural by a local muralist. And it's not pairing you normally see, you know, you don't, when you go down and see a great street art piece or merely you don't expect to see a Rembrandt and yet there's a lot of connections between the two and use of the line and it invigorates that piece the Rembrandt and it shows that a lot of the skill and activity and energy in that piece is still relevant to what's being made today so you have that on one side and there's a lot of other pieces where the stories the connections between the artists come through. In addition to the exhibit itself, which will be on display through August 7th, the Cleve Carney Museum of Art is also presenting a number of public programs to complement the show. We're having the reception for the show to correspond with the launch of the Lakeside uh, Performance Series at the Lakeside here at the Mackinac Art Center. And it's a free event. It's not just going to be an opening reception, but we're going to have an artist talk. So Brittany Mara will be giving a lecture about her work. Visitors will be able to hear more in depth about the show. After the artist talk and reception on July 15th, we'll have uh, on July 19th, which is a Tuesday, we'll have an event called Cocktails and Conversations, which is being held at Common Good Cocktail House in Glen Ellen. Um, they're actually partnering with us a little bit for this exhibition, so they're naming a cocktail after the museum or the exhibition for the summer. and. Jeffrey Swider-Peltz, who did the mural Justin was talking about, is going to be there to give a short talk, but mostly just to kind of have a social time and have people be able to actually form a connection with an artist. Coming up after that on Sunday, July 24th, is going to be a um, book reading and artist talk with Reva Lair, who's another artist who lent work for the show. And she's a best-selling author. She wrote a memoir called Gollum Girl, which is about her journey as a disabled person in the arts and just in her life. And then lastly, we're going to have an event called Art as Discourse, in which Amanda Williams and um, curator and artist Pratika Chowdhury is going to, they're going to have a conversation about Amanda Williams' work and Zarina Hashmi's work, who's the artist she's paired with. And so they're going to be talking a lot about of architecture and mapping and how all of that can come together in the arts. Hooking Up will be on display at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art through August 7th. A special reception and artist talk is scheduled to take place at the museum on Friday, July 15th. You can find more information about those events and the exhibit itself at theccma.org.
And a quick reminder to check out the program's website. If you listen to the art section every week, make sure to visit theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features along with some additional content that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And if you want to reach out to me with an idea or comment or question, you can shoot me an email at gzeitik at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter at onairgary. And you are listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Just in time for Bastille Day. The Story Theater is presenting the Chicago premiere of Marie Antoinette and the Magical Negroes. Written and directed by Chicago-based theater artist and story ensemble member Terry Guest, the play explores revolutions and how things change, or sometimes don't. Let's turn to Carrie. What did you think? Well, you know, this is something I, I was pondering earlier today. It's interesting to me that I saw this show right before we learned of the death of the great Peter Brook, the theater director who also created uh, Marat Saad. And there's a little element of that play, and it's kind of dark, absurdist, almost grand guignol <laughs> aspects here. This is, it, it, this is a play that's a comedy, but, there's the, but it's also very dark <laughs> in many points. There are very funny, farcical elements intertwined with moments that are, you know, very, very stark, very somber. I think it all works together pretty well because there's a wonderful ensemble uh, under Guest's direction. The central story is, as the title implies, uh, the story of Marie Antoinette and the French Revolution. We meet Marie Antoinette sort of in the leading day, the days leading up to the Reign of Terror. We also meet several of her courtiers, several of her servants, ladies-in-waiting, uh, some of whom will end up joining the revolutionaries, some of whom will try to stay loyal to her. We meet her husband, who is the rather hapless <laughs> King Louis XVI. And what Guest is really creating is a meditation on what has to happen for people to get so fed up that bloody revolution seems like the best alternative, and then what happens after. So it's not just the French Revolution. We also meet Toussaint Louverture, the uh, revolutionary who led the Haiti uprising, which was around the same time as the French Revolution. There are references to the 1992 L.A. rebellions. Even the JFK assassination <laughs> comes in. If that sounds like a lot to chew on, it really is. But I found a lot of it very exhilarating. Jonathan, what was your take? Well, I think it's an exuberant piece of new work, and I was impressed at what it did with its very small studio theater space. Uh, with fresh costumes, with choreography, with very lively uh, kinetic scenic design, with shadow puppets, and a range of music kind of underscoring from Hail to the Chief to Beethoven and mm. Dave Brubeck. Um, I thought that Terry Guest's dialogue was very smart, very clever when he chooses to rise above street slang, and it's kind of 50-50 throughout the, throughout the piece. I think the point the play really wants to make is less clear, at least to me as a white mm -hmm. audience member. 
Now, as we've said, it mashes up the French Revolution and the black social justice movement, with the black characters facing low-pay exploitation and insensitive and entitled white bosses in the persons of Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. Now, a slogan on the wall, one of the big scenic pieces, Mm -hmm. says, this is not history. And it isn't in any true sense, although Guest really raises several historically true points, which really have some gravitas to them, such as the link between the European demand for American cotton in the late 1700s mm-hmm. and the explosive growth of, of slavery in the United States. A very, very interesting kind of hook. And I, I was going to say it's a very, very broad road that Guest is uh, paving for us. And Marie Antoinette and the Magical Negroes manages to quote, as you've already said, JFK, um, uh, also Ida B. Wells, yes. Abraham Lincoln, uh, Dr. King, uh, Toussaint Louverture, and the Declaration of the Rights of Man from 1789. There are echoes of assassinations, which you have stated, and a suggestion that spilling blood is necessary to achieve, well, achieve what? To achieve freedom? to achieve independence, to achieve power, to achieve entitlement. They're not precisely the same, even though they usually are bundled together. Yeah. Uh, I would say, to his credit, Guest distinguishes between the democratic aspects of the French Revolution of 1789, which produced the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and the Reign of Terror that came along in 1793, um, and makes the point rather subtly, but definitely, that those who feel the former has failed them, that is, the democratic revolution, may be quick to embrace the latter, the reign of terror. It's interesting to me that the uh, the actors who play, because Marie and, and Louis are played by white actors, the rest of the ensemble is a very skillful ensemble of five black actors, and they all have names that reference racist stereotyping. So where they're identified in the program as Jim Crow, Mammy, Sapphire, Sambo, and Savage. And then I think what we see in their performances is sort of undercutting that idea of them as these sort of minstrel figures. Uh, although some of them do end up playing sort of stereotypical roles. There is a courtier who is a, a gay courtier and good friend, like the sassy gay friend from Marie. <laughs> um, but even with Brenna uh, DeSazio's Marie, Yes, she's very entitled, she's very spoiled, but we get reminders of the fact that she was married at, what, age 14 to Louis? So she was basically, you know, sort of handed over and said, this is this is what you're going to be now. She didn't have a lot of agency, certainly not anything uh, at all comparable to what the people who were enslaved by British colonialism, by French colonialism, by the, all of European colonialism in the New World rendered. Um, but I think that that's one of the things that Guest is good at, giving us these little moments that make it more than just just sort of broad archetypes. He's very good at giving us these little details into what these people might be like in this this-is-not-history <laughs> approach um, when they're not making official pronouncements, when they're, when they're lost and they're scared and they're trying to figure things out on their own. And that includes, I thought, was a very uh, good pairing of um, Marie's lady-in-waiting, who ends up at odds with another uh, servant or, or uh, hand, handmaid to the queen, if you will. You know, the lady-in-waiting Charlotte wants to join the revolutionaries. 
But one of the other women who works there is like, look, I just need this job. I don't want to get involved in all of this. I just need to support myself. Can we just kind of keep things calm? And they're soon on a collision course with each other. And I felt in many ways that was the real um, sympathetic, dramatic arc, because we know what's going to happen to Marie and to King Louis. Uh, but that's giving us an idea of what revolution means for the people on the ground, you know, for the people who are very confused and scared about what is this going to do to my life? How am I going to go on? Yes, the way things are now is not great, but maybe what you're, you know, maybe the direction you're heading in won't work out that well for me either. So in that sense, I thought there's a lot of nuance to some of the uh, the interactions. I, I think there's, uh, I think there's less nuance or I observed or felt less nuance than you did. Marie Antoinette for me, emerged as the only sympathetic and fully realized character. And I combine both of those, not only sympathetic, but fully realized, which seems to me like a mistake in a play which is advocating for racial justice, or at least expressing anger at the absence of hmm. that justice. The ensemble of five actors, as you said, that they're, they're good in, in terms of the, their, their, their performance skills and so forth, uh, so forth. They take on multiple roles, but most of those multiple roles are generic or chorus-like. The program, yes, gives each actor a character name. I think you could have taken those names, those, as you call them, the mm -hmm. minstrel stole names, and you can do an entire work just based on the history and legacy uh, of those names, and that would make an interesting theater piece. But this isn't it. So just why bother? I think part of it is, though, that uh, it, there's a way in which we're being asked to take things out from beyond what we're seeing on the stage. And I wonder if these identifiers in the program are a part of that. Without giving anything away, at one point we're very much asked to weigh in on the fate of Marie. Um, and so I think there's a sense of how do you view these people? You know, do you view them as stereotypes or do you view them as fully realized people, even if you're only, yeah, and, and what does it take for you to be fully sympathetic? With somebody, I mean, I guess we could argue in the case of Marie Antoinette, that we all know something of her story um, already. I would assume going in, I will agree with you that she gets more stage time as a character. Whether that makes her entirely more sympathetic, I'm not particularly sold on that notion. Um, I think yes, Guest is working in very you know quick, quick change, uh, quick sketches. But I felt like within that, that I had a sense of who all of these characters are. Um, did I want to see more of them? Yes, but I think that's a different thing, perhaps, than saying that what we saw was not sufficient to get a sense of their humanity. Yeah, well, I think that the, the two female servants did emerge with you know sufficient mm -hmm. degree of clarity and completeness to understand their positions. The men in the ensemble, no. There was just, for me, no specific individualized development uh, at all. The play ends, this is not giving it away, you know, with Marie Antoinette's execution, which came during the reign of terror, and she was a victim of it. And yes, the play uses some uh, uh, audience uh, interactivity, somewhat coercive in nature, not physically <laughs> coercive, to condone her execution. It's an uncomfortable example of how violence and demagoguery can triumph. Yeah. Uh, Guest does not go so far as to say this is the future we all might face, literally, in this country. But it's uh, really as plain as the daily news we get every day, however we get our news these days. 
And as I said at the beginning, I don't know what he actually wants from me, a white member of his audience, a white male, an older white male member of his audience. And that disturbs me that the message isn't more clear. Well, maybe but we're supposed to be figuring it out for ourselves as white well, people. I well, think maybe that's part of it, too. Well, I think a playwright who doesn't signal, I mean, we had this discussion, was it last week or the week before, where I, I thought a playwright had, had concealed more than, uh, than the playwright revealed? Um, that's part of the playwright's job, is to make his or her or their point of view, you know, something perceptible to the audience. Well, it doesn't, doesn't, ask... doesn't literally have to be stated or spoken, but this well, gives me such a wide to... range yeah. of things to interpret. I can't dispute the energy and creativity of the work, that's for sure, mm-hmm. um, but I wish there was a bit more clarity. Well, I would ask, I mean, I feel like the appearance of Ida B. Wells, and it may be helps that I, I find her one of the most admirable figures in American history, yep. period. I think that that, per- that character is advocating the power of the pen by not saying in any way that you should not resist, that you should not be angry, that you should not fight back, yep. but that you do it by, by writing, by, by, by calling out, by telling the truth. And I think, for me at least, and I can certainly understand if you had a different reaction, Jonathan, but it, to me that felt like in a way that Terry Guest, as the writer of the play, was sort of, I am now putting myself in the voice of Ida B. Wells and asking you all to think about what this means, what this means to, to put black voices center, to let them, let them write their experience, to hear their experience. I was surprised, too, frankly, at the reference, references, because there was more than one to JFK, who, whose you know, history, of course, this is uh, what some people might consider quite a while ago now, you know, uh, 60 years ago, but whose uh, history of support for, for uh, you know, civil rights was mixed at best. Right. Well, maybe that's part of it, too, though, the idea that sometimes you have imperfect messengers, imperfect, you know, uh, incremental steps to kind of get you down the road to where you need to be. What I do appreciate, as you mentioned, Jonathan, is the way that he's managed to embody it in so many different, you know, so many different characters with such a smart and um, well-paced and uh, well-written selection of scenes. It gave me a lot to think about. Did I come away with a conclusion? Not particularly, but I, I don't know. I always find the most interesting plays for me are the ones that don't point me in a direction, but just, you know, show me several different paths and say, based on what you're seeing and based on what you know, which road do you think you would take? And so uh, a bit of a, a split verdict here from the Dueling Critics. The Story Theater's Marie Antoinette and the Magical Negroes continues at Raven Theater through July 17th. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. And we want to move on and talk a little bit about some recent developments over at Victory Gardens Theater. As we've discussed here several times, there's been a lot of leadership changes in the local theater community over the past two years, though it seems as if Victory Gardens has struggled uh, as it attempts to start its next chapter. Jonathan, it appears there are some deep divisions between the the company's board of directors and the, the staff and artistic ensemble. That obviously is true. There have been all sorts of postings online. Um, it must be said that the staff and artistic som- ensemble have been heard from. Ken Matt Martin, the artistic director who, whom the board has uh, placed on leave, uh, has not been heard from. 
and the board itself has issued no statements. So we're seeing only one side, and that side is uh, massive resignations, mass resignations by mem- members of the staff in support of Ken Matt Martin, and massive resignations by the resident artists and playwrights, I believe. I don't know how what the number is, nine or ten people in a relatively small uh, staff. The uh, They claim that the board has not consulted them, has done things privately, made decisions that should involve the artistic director and the managing director of the theater, but has not. They've made decisions without Mm -hmm. them. And uh, nobody is forthcoming. Uh, The board has said only that they have placed uh, uh, Ken Matt Martin on leave for what they describe as a personal issue. Right. There was a statement issued yesterday by the theater board chairman, Charles Harris. Some of this does seem to go back to a story about, um, or at least a situation where apparently the board was interested in purchasing a building right next door or property right next door to Victory Gardens. Again, this is just something I've been piecing together because I have not been able to talk to anybody directly. Um, yeah. That they were concerned that the finance, that the, with given the finances and that they haven't fully been able to staff coming back from pandemic, why would they be spending money on this building? Uh, Charles Harris, the theater board chairman, did say uh, just in a short statement that was sent to the press: the real estate transaction mentioned by the playwrights ensemble appears to be misunderstood. The transaction concerns the ownership of the theater property and will have no adverse impact on the financial stability of the theater or its artistic direction. So there's, you know, a lot of uh, things out there in the ether right now. I think what is clear, and Jonathan, I, I think maybe you would agree with this, is that there there has been this continuing saga, I guess we can call it at this point, because it's going back at least on and off for 20 years in my memory, if not longer, of the artistic staff, the artistic director being at odds with the board, sometimes over real estate decisions, sometimes over... Um, other hiring decisions, sometimes over the composition of the playwrights ensemble. You know, two years ago when Shea Yu stepped down, Erica Daniels was brought on as the, um, who had been the managing director or executive director, was brought on as the executive, was named, renamed the executive artistic director. That caused a lot of furor because they felt, the playwrights ensemble felt there should be an art national search. They walked out. I mean, they there had been um, issues with the board with, Dennis Vajchuk and uh, Marcy McVeigh. So I don't know what it is about this particular company. I mean, every company has, you know, goes through upheavals. But I, it, it just seems that in some ways Victory Gardens is particularly prone to them. And I wish to God I knew why that is, honestly, because they do some wonderful work. Kalidwada, which is closing next on the 17th or the 19th, is one of the finest plays I've seen all year under the direction of Lillianne Brown, who is one of the artistic ensemble members who signed that public letter and has walked out. So the work has been always great. The work, the, the ways in which the work comes together often seems to be fraught, again, for reasons that I'm not entirely fraught. Yeah, we, we are not party to the, you know, the, the, the two central issues, or the three central issues, mm-hmm. seem to have been, one, this real estate purchase, about which we know relatively little, except for the statement that you channeled right. a, a, a moment ago from the, the member of the board chair or president or chairperson Mm -hmm. uh that's issue number one issue number two putting on leave the artistic director who's been in place not quite two years about two years now i think actually just a year um and uh, okay and if you go from che yu's resignation 
No, he was he 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 brought stability. He was artistic director mm-hmm. for nine years, and then chose of his own volition to to uh, step down and to, to pursue other mm-hmm. things. Uh, and since that, the timing, which he couldn't have foreseen, was just at right. the point of the George Floyd protests, BIPOC protests, and COVID and so forth. But the net result is that Victory Gardens has gone through three artistic directors in three years. Um, and so there is, and, and has been closed for, not even producing, for a great length of that time. So, uh, so anyway, the one was the real estate, two was the position, the professional mm-hmm. position of the artistic director, and third was the fact that the theater's been functioning without a permanent uh, executive director or managing director for right. uh, for several years now. Right. And there was a candidate whom the resident ensemble members and staff backed, who was in negotiations for the job with the board, but the negotiations have been called off. And again, we know none of the details about that. I so, just do hope that it will not bode ill for the continued um, this is a, existence. This is, that's, that's a fear, you know. Um, yeah, this, it, is but, a four, this is a 48-year-old theater, one of Chicago's six Tony Award-winning theater companies, distinguished and important. And, you know, things like this can show you how fragile how fragile it all is. And yes, this company could go under if they don't bring some stability to management and artistic direction and do it relatively quickly. Right. And, you know, we had talked about, as you said, Jonathan, the great wave of hires for BIPOC theaters. Well, you know, Lenise Antoine Shelley was brought on at House Theater. They have closed down. Ken Matt Martin was brought on a year ago at Victory Gardens, and he's one of the few uh, black artistic directors at a theater of that stature in the country so now he's on administrative leave. I mean, so it, it it doesn't feel good. That's all I will say right now without having more of the facts. And I and I do hope that there is some kind of mediation or something that can be done to really um, really shore this up and get to the root yeah. of, of yeah. why these yeah. problems seem to be, for Victory Gardens particularly, but certainly they are not alone in that, and I didn't mean to give that impression. In this case specifically, it feels a little scorched earth. Yeah, hopefully, like some type of mediation there that provides a path forward. But it, mm-hmm. right now, it kind of feels like scorched earth. One yeah. of the interesting things is that Victory Gardens Board of Directors or Board of Trustees is relatively small given a theater of its size and stature. I think there are only about fifteen people um, uh, someplace around there. And it is one of the most diverse boards of any of the major not-for-profit theater companies I know in the city. And I think it also speaks to conflicts between, you know, artists who are brought on and are told they are stakeholders, but they are not actually members of the board, and the board really are the stakeholders. Yes, they are. They they have to make the decision. Right, and I think you and I talked about this when the whole Erica Daniels decision blew up. That's why you need to be very, very clear on people's roles within an artistic organization from jump, whether you're a board member, whether you're a member of the ensemble. Like, what do these terms mean? What is expected? How much power do I have? You know, I think that that's a really big problem in a lot of nonprofits, not just in the theater world. People come in because they have great, you know, commitment to the mission. They are excited by it. And then once they're in and seeing how the sausage is made, they start thinking, wait a minute, this is maybe not what I signed on for. And that's when feelings get hurt and misunderstandings happen and things escalate. All right. We'll have to wait and see what happens next, like everybody else. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. 
Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. Thank you both. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned in to WDCB. This is the art section. Favorite actor, Dennehy. Favorite drink, old bulls, bears, hawks, socks, bulls. Say goodbye a little longer like I ate a piece of big red. Despite this being the quote-unquote golden age of television, it's also a challenging environment for show creators because while there's more platforms than ever to present new series, there's also more new shows than ever before, so it's easy for new projects to get lost. There's a seemingly endless conveyor belt of new watchable content constantly coming our way. The days of everyone talking about the same show at the water cooler are likely over, because outside of a few recent exceptions, like Game of Thrones, there aren't many universally watched TV series. Also, people don't really gather at the water cooler anymore. But that's beside the point. If I do talk to somebody about TV, it usually turns into a volley of titles back and forth. Hey, did you watch the last season of Ozark? No, I haven't had a chance to check it out. I've been watching Stranger Things. Oh yeah, I've got to start that right after I finish Severance. I've heard that's good, I'm going to try to watch it, but I'm also watching Only Murders in the Building, Westworld, Better Call Saul, Obi-Wan Kenobi, We Own the City, Shining Girls, and The Great British Bake Off. So yeah, you get the idea. There's a lot out there. It's tough to keep up, so when you do decide to sit down and watch a series, you're making an investment of your time. With all that in mind this week, I want to highlight a series that I feel deserves to be seen. My favorite show of the year so far is a series called The Bear. I love this tempo. Let's take it up another level. More urgency. You got no idea what you're doing here. This is a delicate ecosystem, and it's held together by a shared history and love. Chicago, am I right? We want to change this restaurant, right? We have to change the chemistry. Yo, family's up! The Bear comes from first-time showrunner Christopher Storer and stars Jeremy Allen White, who some of you may know from the Showtime series Shameless, as Carmen Barzato, a.k.a. The Bear. Carmen, or Carmi, is a world-class fine dining chef who has returned to his hometown of Chicago, to save his family's Italian beef restaurant. The shop is called The Original Beef of Chicagoland in the show, but bears a striking resemblance to Mr. Beef in the River North neighborhood. The series features a cast of true Chicago characters who go by names like Cicero, Cousin, and Gary. And it's the characters who are the Bears' true strengths. Everyone in the show feels like a version of someone I've met before. Beyond that, it also nails the details of what it's like to work in a restaurant. The fast pace and the claustrophobic feeling of working with a bunch of people in a hot kitchen. And on top of all that, the bear really captures what Chicago is actually like, better than most films or TV shows that I've ever seen. The show touches on the city's good, bad, and ugly, and the end result is something beautiful. Jason Diamond is a Chicagoan native, an author, and a writer for GQ magazine. His latest piece for the magazine is titled, The Bear is the Great Chicago TV Show. So I recently reached out to him while he was traveling France's countryside to talk about our shared appreciation for this new Chicago-set TV show. 
In your GQ piece, you write that The Bear is is one of the few TV series to get Chicago right. What were some of the the local details that that stuck out to you when you first started watching? There were a lot of them. I mean, obviously, I was really concerned about the accent because, you know, my wife is from New England, and I've been married to her during the rise of the, the Boston sort of uh, the television and films obsession with Boston. Right. And I've kind of seen how, um, so I get to go to New England a lot. And I get to see just how badly uh, television and movies have butchered the Boston accent and the Chicago accent, you know, the, 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 I think the national introduction to the, you know, the, a certain kind of Chicago accents came through the super fans, the SNL sketch from the early nineties. And I just thought it was going to be, Oh, hey, how you doing? I'm, you know, going to make the beef and I'm going to, you know, I thought it was just going to be everybody, everybody talking like that. And if you know Chicago, you know that there are those accents, but there's also like, when you go to the South side, there's, you know, from the great migration of African-Americans, you still hear a lot of Southern. So I was worried that it was just going to be a parody. And um, I was really happy to see that it wasn't. Yeah, I definitely think there are those people outside of Chicago that think we all talk like super fans though there are versions of that accent that, that do really exist. And also, if I can say, when Richie yelled, one, I think he said, like, one hot dog, drag it through the garden. That's a good one. I, I, <laughs> that's like, that, to me, is like one of those phrases that I think one place probably did it, and it became popular by the 90s or maybe the early aughts, but I remember hearing it a couple of times. But I, now I hear people refer to um, the Chicago dog as like a walk through the garden. or And then the other thing was the B96 sticker stuck out. To oh, me. yeah. yeah. Uh, the killer B, B96. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Because that's like my like elementary school days, like Eddie and Joe. Yeah. Radio in the morning. And... Yeah, like a, yeah, a, bunch, of, a bunch of that stuff, right? But I'm like wondering, and you might have some good perspective on this because um, you're based in New York now. Do you think people outside of, of Chicago, I guess those references don't really matter. The show is just good enough on its own. Yeah, but you know what? I think Chicagoans are a very specific breed. And we take things very seriously. And if you screw up our things, we're going to let it be known. And I think there's enough Chicagoans in the, I don't want to say like critical ecosphere, because it's definitely, it makes it sound a little bit more highfalutin than it is. But I mean, there's a lot of people in media that are either from Chicago or maybe they went to Northwestern for journalism school or they know the city that I think they're going to be like, hey, this is phony. It's BS. There's nothing Chicago about this. And I think that would have actually tanked the show in a lot of ways. Like, I don't think it would have. If you don't get Chicago right, I think it would have um, definitely hurt the show. And I think critically, it wouldn't. I just don't think people would have taken it as seriously as they have. Um, and that's why, like, you know, Dick Wolf has tried to do Chicago shows. And nobody talks about Dick Wolf's Chicago <laughs> shows. They talk about, you know, Law and Order, which, you know, everything there is so New York specific. Right, right. Um, but you just, you can't, you can't fake Chicago. And that's, it's, it's just too hard, man. It's like, I, that's why I, I, I'm both surprised, but also happy there haven't been a ton of great Chicago shows and movies. You know, I'd like to see more, but they have to get it right. Well, I was like you, and that's probably why your piece in GQ resonated with me was because going into this, I was kind of nervous. I was like, uh 
friends had told me about this show and they're like, this is right up your alley. But I was like, ah, you know, if they get it wrong, it's going to make me more upset. But it did seem to, <laughs> to hit the right notes on those details. And then I, I thought the, the characters were just great. So just curious about your opinion. Uh, I think we all know that when it comes to the entertainment industry, the big decisions are made on the coast. But why is it so hard to, to get Chicago right in TV and film projects? You know, I don't really know. I mean, I reference, you know, Michael Mann's Thief, which to me is like one of the films that I consider like the gold standard in terms of Chicago movies. You know, and I don't think it gets talked about uh, enough as like the great Chicago film for whatever reason, not for me to say. But then the other one is, is you know, the, the fact that Michael Mann is from Chicago, I think really lent itself to why that movie, you know, it's from 1981, but it's still to me that resonates in my mind as like a movie that looks like Chicago. And then the other one is the Blues Brothers and, and John Landis is from Chicago. Ackroyd is Toronto, but a lot of familiarity with the city. And obviously Belushi is a Chicago guy. So I think, you know, they're, they're, it takes a Chicago person to sort of be like, hey, this city isn't just one thing. It's not just the people who are going to say, hey, Chicago, deep dish pizza. It's like, no, first of all, <laughs> it's definitely not deep dish pizza. It's nobody, nobody in Chicago goes, hey, we're going out to Pequod's. You know, third night in a row. <laughs> Me and the boys are going to eat another deep dish. No, everyone in Chicago would be dead. They eat tavern style. And, you know, it's just the little nuances. Chicago is a city full of nuances that you just have to at least not only understand but appreciate. And um, I think the appreciation is definitely there. And if I, if I may, if I could say one thing, one of the criticisms I've seen of the show is that I think the sh I believe the the beef is located near Riverwalk. I think they say it's in the River North neighborhood. And the people are like, "Oh, it's already gentrified." But I'm like, to me, I think that's a really. And then they they were also like, "Oh, the fine dining and the Italian beef thing doesn't make sense." And I'm like, I actually think that's a really interesting and very Chicago thing. Is that the show is like. It's about this place that might be like one of the last holdouts in this neighborhood that, yes, is very heavily gentrified. And it's that that sort of very Chicago, like, how do we keep it grounded in, in this tradition and, and what we like and what we are, but also, you know, kind of go with the times and move forward? Because if the local neighbors that want our Italian beef are being kind of pushed out, what do we do? You know, and I think there's a really interesting, I'm kind of curious to see where the show goes with it. So I obviously love the show and I watched it uh, a few days after it came out, but I, I wasn't sure of what the widespread reaction would be, but it, it feels like it's gaining some momentum. And if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 100% score from critics. So it seems like it's getting a great critical response. I don't know what the, the viewer numbers are like. Those are hard to gauge when it comes to streaming services, but do you get a sense that it will get a season two? Yeah, I mean, I literally just logged on to Twitter for the first time today in like five hours. And for some reason, you know, I'm talking to you right now from France. I'm in France right now. And so my, my Twitter is all kind of screwed up. But right now on my timeline, um, a trending topic is the bear. And it's got 100 and 
2,000 tweets right now. So something about it just is like it's like gaining momentum. Uh, and I think it's I, I think it's personally the surprise hit of the summer. I don't know if FX thought it was going to do so well. I really don't know uh, if they had what what their plans were, but I, I don't see how that show is not getting at least a second season. It was just so well done, in my opinion. It took this very A24, you know, Safety Brothers kind of aesthetic that's becoming very popular on film, and it it it, it did it in tele on television. And I think it's you know I don't want to like puff it up too much, but I think it's it's um, doing something very interesting besides being a great Chicago show, besides being a great show that shows what the intensity of working in a kitchen is like. I think it actually is filmed and paced in a way that um, doesn't look like much on TV. Um, and it sort of deviates from this sort of slow pace, golden age of TV, Sopranos, Mad Men, um, Breaking Bad. You know, Breaking Bad is obviously intense. Sopranos is obviously intense, but it was a different pace. And this just doesn't look like anything else to me. Yeah. Safety-esque, that's, that's good for folks out there listening who saw Uncut Gems. It, it's got that vibe for sure. Yeah. And In your piece in uh, GQ, you also bring in a little of your like personal life, and that, that hit home with me too because my first job uh, ever was at like a, a hot dog beef place in the suburbs, so not Chicago, but uh, you know, you wrote that you worked at, at one of those uh, classic Chicago um, beef hot dog spots in uh, when you were uh, was it just out of high school? Yeah, I was um, nineteen, I think eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, yeah. The show just gets that you know what it's like working in a restaurant, but also like specifically what it's like working in one of those spots. Just all the details, just pitch perfect. Yeah, my my family actually owned my my grandfather when he quote unquote retired actually owned owned a hot dog and beef place out in Buffalo Grove or Wheeling. I forget which part it was. Um, you know, so, I mean, I was, I was raised basically like this, you know, I know so much about the, the ecosystem, I guess. I don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but I know, I know it very intimately. And um, yeah, it's very, uh, I could smell beef. I could smell Italian beef juice all the time it's my proustian thing like when i smell that juice i'm like oh yeah that's why i'll never be a vegetarian <laughs> if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section my name's gary zydek i'm talking with gq writer jason diamond about the new chicago set tv show the bear we've talked about you know the chicago details and we touched on the kind of the the food but also just the the characters that that have been written for this show. It's like this ragtag collection that that represents different parts of, of Chicago. Not every part, but you know different parts. And it almost felt like uh, because uh, those of us here know you know how segregated the the city is, but the the restaurant itself felt like aspirational. Like we saw all these different people coming together and and not changing themselves. They still had their differences, but kind of working together. It felt positive because Chicago gets such a bad rap. Yeah, especially, I mean, people of color in Chicago, black people, Latino people especially get that in Chicago. And I think I was really moved by the way, you know, Marcus's story. Like, you know, just I thought Tina, by, by, played by Lisa Colon um, Zayas, I thought she was just stunning. Like, she blew me away. And, and I always, you know, the, Sydney, um, the aspiring chef, 
obviously incredible. But to me, Tina was like, I could not take my eyes off of her. Um, and I, I believe Lisa Colon Zayas, who plays Tina, is, is a, a playwright, and she's you know big in the theater. Uh, you know, you've seen her if you've watched like any show, you've probably seen her on like SCU or Sex in the City. But like to me, she just represents the perfect character on this show because she feels so Chicago, like no BS, doesn't care about all the special places that that Carmi has worked but she's also got this like I, I kind of like described it as like this sort of matriarch slash alpha vibe that if you've ever worked in a kitchen you absolutely understand who she is like her place like you cannot make enemies with her. yeah exactly um, and, and I thought she was like she doesn't have to like you you don't have to be friends with her. Just make sure she doesn't hate you. Or yeah. else you're, you're, you're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But also she just, you know, she likes the way things were. She's just fantastic. And then we won't, I don't want to give anything away for folks that haven't seen it, but yeah, she has kind of her own arc and it's kind of inspiring in a way or makes you feel good. And I also thought the Carmi character, like his leadership style just like inspired me. Like, for most of the the season he just is just like he's just like one of those leaders that just like does it and he, he's just gonna like lead by example and i was like wow that's we get so much of that the alpha male chef you know character type that's like in your face yeah he was more i mean you know we've lived in the shadow of anthony bourdain you know who is i, I a hero of mine um and i think a lot of people took what he was what he was trying to say wasn't a good thing like the the macho aggressive alpha kitchen guy he was like this isn't a good thing these people are miserable but i think people took his what he was saying the wrong way and i think carmy is you know he's intense because working in a kitchen is intense it's hot people are angry people are yelling you know you screw up an order all that was very real, but you know, he was thinking things through. Like he didn't say yes or no right away. Like he said no one to, I think to Sydney at some point where he was angry about something. He freaked out. I mean, that's just the way those jobs are. It's not good. It's not bad, but you know, he's not some parody of, um, Oh gosh, I forget his name. Cause I can't stand him. The British. Oh, Ramsey. Kitchen nightmares guy. I can't stand Ramsey. Um, <laughs> Gordon Ramsey. Yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't stand Gordon Ramsay. But, you know, I think I, I was really thinking about this. It's funny because ever since Bourdain died a few years ago, I was like, you know, it's been so hard to me to imagine Bourdain in our current world because of COVID, because of the inability to travel. But watching this show, I was like, man, I really wish he was here right now. Man, I wish he was, I wish he was here for a million reasons. I wish he hadn't passed away, but... I was like, God, I think he'd really enjoy this show. I'd, or, or I'd be curious to know his thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I don't want to go overboard uh, gushing, but uh, I thought casting was pitch perfect. The main character, Carmi, his older brother looms large over the kind of the whole story because it was his... It was the family's beef restaurant. He was running it before he passes away. We hear them talk about him a lot, but then we, we get to see him in a, a couple flashbacks, and he's played by... Uh, yes. John Barenthal, who for, you know, a lot of people have seen him, but maybe don't know the name, but he was just, he's just like pitch perfect for that role. I would love to see like more of him in flashbacks. 
Oh my gosh. I thought Berenthal was great. You know, obviously the, there's a scene in there where he's talking. I don't, I won't give away the, the celebrity he's like building up to be like, who was it? But I was like, God, this is the most Chicago. There's like <laughs> a couple of people in Chicago that people to this day will be like, I was at a bar and I saw it. It's like always like Vince Vaughn. <laughs> exactly. Um, some old Chicago, some, a Blackhawk who didn't win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> It was like Eddie Belfour or yeah, Ronick. Yeah. Chelios, um, yeah. Or a, or a Murray brother. It's usually like one of the not Bill Murray brothers, but that was really <laughs> funny. But I have to say, one of the greatest pieces of casting on that show to me was Oliver Platt as a guy just named Cicero. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know if people know this or not, but first of all, he did a great job. Um, I was like Oliver Platt as a guy named Cicero who loans people money, I'm like, I have, that, that, that was a real Easter egg where I'm like, I've known 10 of these guys my life. You know, I've known plenty of guys like this with, through my family, just like, you know, shady, but whatever. He's just a Chicago guy. You don't, doesn't matter. That's just who people are in Chicago. But his brother is, is, is Adam Platt. He's just kind of logged off as the food critic for New York magazine. So there's a, a really interesting sort of connection there, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and then Oliver Platt played a food critic in uh, the John Favreau movie uh, Chef. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it all kind of <laughs> a very nice little... Uh, For people that haven't watched it, it's uh, it was dropped all on Hulu last month. Now that it's getting such a good reception, you would think that the folks at FX are going to put it on their the actual cable station at some point, right? So, I mean, I'm not really sure how that stuff works, but like, it's, I think it's just, it's one of those television shows that it kind of came out of left field. And I think you're going to start seeing shows looking like it more. And you're going to be like, oh, this was the start of a different kind of look for television. So, I mean, I, w- I would hope so. They would be silly not to because it was, I really thought it was one of the better first seasons of television I've, I can't remember the last time I saw a first season without like, I'm not going to say it's like, Sopranos level or Mad Men or anything like that, but it, it's it's definitely it's definitely up there for me personally as one of the better, more ambitious, well executed television shows I've seen in a long time. And really quickly before I let you go on a, a different subject other than the bear, you've written two books, both with local ties. Uh, your latest book, titled The Sprawl, Reconsidering the Weird American Suburbs, received rave reviews when it came out in, in 2020, made a lot of uh, top 10 lists. So the idea here was to look at the suburbs through maybe a new lens. Well, you know, when I was a kid, so I was born in Skokie, um, and I, I pretty quickly, my parents separated when I was young, and I, I basically... I lived in cities for the first few years of my life, and then when I moved, then when my parents kind of got settled, I was in the suburbs proper. I was, you know, living in Skokie and Long Grove and Lake Forest. Um, so I got to know the suburbs pretty well, and I just wanted to get out of them so badly. And um, you know, having lived in cities my entire adult life now, I've kind of I took a lot of time to look back and be like, wow. So much of what I like is from the suburbs. Um, and, you know, I focus a lot of it on the Chicago suburbs, um, Long Grove, Lake Forest, et cetera. But, um, you know, I was, I'm kind of fascinated how we 
sort of take things like the suburbs and we're just like, oh, it's this one thing um, and it's bad. So we need to make fun of it and not understand what it actually helps, what it feeds our society, like culturally. And I was, you know, I just wanted to sort of have a chance to, you know, maybe give people another way to look at what this, these places, not just one place, but suburbs all over the country have and continue to contribute to American and world culture and why maybe so much has come out of the suburbs over the last 50 plus years. Nice. Well, you can check out The Sprawl that's at bookstores uh, everywhere and people should make sure to check out your piece in GQ on, on The Bear. Jason, I appreciate you taking time uh, while you're in France to talk with me. Oh, no problem, Gary. I mean, food's okay here, but there's uh, there's no beef. There's no Italian beef. <laughs> but there's, no, there's no Italian beef. I'm not going to go. Nobody's going to put Jardinera on anything for me. So. <laughs> That was Jason Diamond. You can check out his piece on The Bear at GQ.com. He's also got a website of his own where you can find links to his work at JasonDiamond.net. And if you want to see the show The Bear for yourself, it's on Hulu. If you don't have Hulu, hopefully the series will be released on FX in the coming months. You should know that after watching a few episodes, you'll probably have a craving for an Italian beef. As I throw each one of you a kiss, this is my kind of town. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then... I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Grim like a clown, it's my kind of town.